Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to Psalm 108. Psalm 108. It is the practice here at the Dallas Reformed Presbyterian Church to consider once a month a psalm of the month. We go sequentially through the psalm book, as the psalm book is the manual of Christian praise. This is a survey of our psalms here, uh, not a deep dive, but it is given so that we can fulfill the commandment of God who tells us to sing with the understanding also in 1 Corinthians 14. So if you turn there to Psalm 108 and give your attention once again to the reading of God's holy word, these are the very words of God Almighty, holy, inspired, and infallible. Let us hear them as such. A song or psalm of David. O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise, even with my glory. Awake, psaltery and harp, I myself will awake early. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people, and I will sing praises unto thee among the nations. For thy mercy is great above the heavens, and thy truth reacheth unto the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, and thy glory above all the earth that thy beloved may be delivered. Save with thy right hand and answer me. God hath spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and mete out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the strength of mine head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast out my shoe. Over Philistia, Will I triumph? Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Wilt not thou, O God, who hast cast us off? And wilt not thou, O God, go forth with our hosts? Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. O gracious God and Father, we come to a glorious word from you, O Father, a word from the heavens, and now we come to hear it preached. And we pray, Father, then, that you would bless the minister who preaches, that he would preach up Jesus. He wouldn't preach his own opinions. He wouldn't preach his own thoughts, but the very mind of God. So bless your minister now with the spirit of grace the Spirit of God, to preach the Word of God that was inspired by the very Holy Spirit of God. And we pray that all those who will now hear this Word would have their hearts and ears opened, their minds ready to hear it as a word from the heavens. Father, we pray that you would help your people now. Give us help, Father, for we are weak in the flesh. And we pray then to that end that you would, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, that grace would be given that I should preach among your people the unsearchable riches of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, this past week, as you know, we had our midterm elections in the nation. Many Christians even seem to have put their hope that uh, these elections would reverse the terrible direction our nation is headed in. And it is. It is a terrible direction our nation seems to be headed in. In fact, it seems that, strangely enough, or not strangely enough, sadly, terrifyingly enough, that what motivated a lot of people uh, 
in a particular political party to get to the polls is because they wanted to murder their children. This is a terrible thing. Terrible, terrible thing. And leading up to these midterm elections, many believers asked me, and they used peculiar words, things like this, have you done your duty to vote? Have you done your duty to vote? Uh, you could sense there was a sense of desperation, that there was a, a sense that their hope was being set in the political realm, in the, the princes of this world to set things right. And as I reflected on this exhortation from many to do my so-called duty to vote, I realized I've never been asked anything like this. Pastor, have you done your duty And have you prayed, thy kingdom come? Pastor, have you done your duty and preached to the lost that they might enter the kingdom of heaven? No, every two years, the predictable question is, have you voted? Our flesh has set its hope on men. Our society has indoctrinated us to set our hope in political parties and systems. So now there is a prevailing attitude of hoping in men that prevails especially throughout the American church today. But what did the Lord show us this past week? To hope in men is to find disappointment. And it seems fitting, and the Lord is so merciful that with the disappointment many of us have felt this past week, praise the Lord, here is our psalm of the month, uncued, so to speak, a word from the Lord, give us help from trouble, for vain, vain is the help of man. It sets our hope in the right place. It says to us, through God we shall do valiantly, for He It is that shall tread down our enemies. Through Jesus Christ, the gospel will advance. Our petition, thy kingdom come, if we are praying it, will be answered. The great commission will prevail, and many peoples and nations will come to Jesus Christ. And staggeringly, he says he will use us, his church, to do it. He will not use the parties of men. But Romans 16.20 says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Whose feet? The church's feet. He says the God of heaven is going to crush Satan under the feet of his church. That's a stunning verse. That the Lord will use his body to crush Satan's kingdom. And that's, friends, where our hopes ought to be. That's where our labor and that's where our energy must be fixed. That as Christ's great commission goes forth, righteousness in our nation and every nation is the inevitable consequence when souls are born again and arise to newness of life. That's what this psalm is for. To sing, to pair it with the great commission as it goes forth and Christ goes conquering, that we would set our hope in God and not in men. And so our theme is, from this psalm, that through Christ we will do valiantly and the Great Commission will prevail. We'll consider that head under three, uh, our theme under three heads rather. First is purpose, second is praise, and the third is prayer. First, purpose. Let us understand the context 
and purpose for this psalm. You might feel like you've heard it before, and you have in a way. This psalm is an amalgam of two other psalms. It is an amalgam of Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11, and Psalm 60, verses 5 through 12. David authored those two psalms, as well as this psalm, as the title here makes it clear. And he arranges the material in those two psalms to create a third, a new composition. Now, this does not make the psalm redundant. It's actually interesting. I opened up a few commentaries, and many don't comment on the psalm. They say, basically, look at Psalm 57 and look at Psalm 60. But we have to understand the psalm is not redundant. First of all, the Lord, because of the dullness of our spirit, has to repeat himself often. He reminds us of his truths. You know, so much, uh, I've meditated on this, so much of this Bible is repetition because we need to hear the same things over and over again. We are hard of heart and we need to hear it, especially when it comes to matters like this. Where ought our faith and hope ought to be? In Jesus Christ alone. And so God has to repeat himself. But also these two Psalms together, form a particular pian of praise. In the other Psalms, you know, as you look at how, you might want to look at that this Lord's Day. In the other Psalm, David clearly has composed them in the midst of his calamities. While our Psalm seems to have been forged after all of his difficulties have been resolved. For instance, in Psalm 57, in the title, it deals with David fleeing from Saul in the cave of Adullam. On the run, from Saul, what, what, if you put yourself there, <coughs> and we have heard preaching on first and second Samuel in times past, but if you remember that time where David is on the run from Saul, what must it have felt like for David that the promises of God were so tenuous? He's always running for his, for his life and the promised throne seemed so far from him. But in Psalm 57, verse 1, he said, I will take refuge in God until my calamities be overpassed. And here we have Psalm 108, which is likely written after his enthronement, where David gets to see now and pens the psalm of praise. God has kept his promise through every difficulty. I first sang these portion, this verse, these verses when I was in my trouble. And now I sing this psalm, seeing on the other side what God has done. And so Psalm 108, we see David uh, uh, penning a psalm after the Lord brings to pass his promises, moved by the Spirit, composing this amalgamated psalm for God's people in every age to find hope and confidence in God. So that in the face of great difficulty, especially from David's own experience where the kingdom seems hopeless, we would see that the Lord will tread down his enemies as he has promised. David got to taste that, and he got to see the Lord's goodness, even when things were seemingly against him. David prophesies here that David's son Jesus will have victory over the nations and through his church, his own people. That's how we use Psalm 108 here. Do you think about it this way? When you think of, look at a psalm like this, was it preserved so that we could have hope in David's conquest over Philistia? No, of course not. That's long past, long gone. It was preserved for David's son, King Jesus, and his conquest of the nations. 
It was preserved to sing for the great commission in Matthew 28. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And praise God for this. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, this is a psalm of victory for sure, but it is also a psalm that is realistic. It never denies that there are times where the Lord might chasten his church. Consider verse 11. Wilt not thou, O God, who has cast us off, wilt not thou, O God, go forth with our hosts or armies? This experience here is not unusual. The Lord often chastens his church for being wayward. But our hope is, as David's hope was, that the Lord's anger will cease, right? And he will go forth with our people. Just as Jeremiah prayed, turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. A psalm like this reminds us that when the church repents of her sin and seeks his face, God will go forth with us. God will go forth with us, his army. His spirit will fill our hearts and our souls. He will send forth his word and power to demolish Satan's strongholds. He will bring down every philosophy and every regime contrary to Christ. He will convert the hearts of many to Jesus and snatch souls out of the very gates of hell. Unless you misunderstand the application, especially if you're new to the faith, what is in view here is not the war of military armies. It is a war of spiritual armies that we wage. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. This is what this psalm is about when you see this kind of warfare against the nations. It is the Great Commission through the preaching and proclamation of the Word of God, where nations are gathered in, the, 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 the nations are converted to Christ. And as I thought on 2 Corinthians 10, we think about how often we have leaned into that word, right? That the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That's a true word, friend, isn't it? that the weapons of our warfare, especially the word of God and prayer, they're mighty and Christ conquers men and women's hearts. He conquers their hearts and gives them life everlasting. He is a gracious conqueror in that. But you notice this, and this is what David pleads for and what we must, we must get straight ourselves, is unless the Lord goes with us, unless the Lord goes with us, even the means of grace will not prevail. Do you understand that? In 2 Corinthians 10, he says, the, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through who? God. God. That's why David prays here in Psalm 108. And wilt not thou, O God, go forth with our hosts? If God doesn't go with us, then even the word of God is of no value, friends. There are many who open the word of God day by day who are scholars, and there's no power in the word because God is not with them. Um, this is something for us in the Reformed Church. Men can trust in the means of grace in a similar way that the Israelites trusted in the Ark of the Covenant. Right? 
It is quite terrible to observe this, as though the means of grace are magic, which is really more the Roman Catholic perception of things. We can trust in means, even the means of grace are not God. You can learn that from the Ark of the Covenant. It was useless unless the Lord went with Israel. In fact, they suffered defeat when God didn't go with them and they had the Ark. It's not magic like in some popular movies, boys and girls. If God is not with the ark, if God is not with the word, if God is not in the prayer, then it is useless. Moses had it absolutely right. If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. Exodus thirty-three fourteen. The psalm's purpose, yes, is that we would do valiantly, but it understands this only if Jesus is with us. Only if the Lord is with us will we do valiantly. If he is with us, the Lord will set forth his word with power. He will convert unbelievers. He will edify us. He will build us up. He will fortify our souls. He will cause the kingdom of heaven to expand and grow and cover the earth, as promised in Daniel chapter 2. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain. And the interpretation thereof, sure. This is what we long to see, friends. Is this what your hope is? That the kingdom of heaven shall cover the earth. Our longing is not for a red wave to cover the nation. Our longing is for Christ's kingdom, that stone cut without hands, to consume nations. For God to bless the preaching of Christ crucified, causing men and nations to be reborn by faith in him so that Christ will be submitted from the heart. And Psalm seventy-two seventeen will come to pass. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. That is something to long for. And when that happens, then righteousness prevails. Do, do a people who love the Lord Jesus Christ, will they ever vote for abortion? Will they ever seek to have children murdered? Will they see uh, LGBTQ whatever wanting to uh, uh, be in their nation? No. This is what we long for, that the Son of God would be worshipped and adored throughout the earth. And the Lord will accomplish this through us, his people. And so we pray, will not thou, O God, go forth with our hosts? Now, what about men? This is something, we've sang this already. We've heard it read. What about hope in mere men? What is that verse in verse 12? Vain is the help of man. Yet how often are mere sinful men our first port of call in our distress? The psalm then is meant to recalibrate and reset your hopes, especially in the day of spiritual battle. And what Ephesians 6 makes clear to us all is that every day is the day of spiritual battle, isn't it? You can take this psalm then. This is not just for the Great Commission. It is also for your life. You contend daily against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you say, through God, 
I shall do valiantly against these three great enemies of my soul. And you can sing the psalm personally in that way. So that to give us a bit of context, a bit of purpose to the psalm and how we will treat it. Our psalm can be neatly divided into two portions. The first portion, verses 1 through 5, is a call to praise the Lord for his promise of victory. The second portion, verses 6 through 12, are prayers to the Lord that are based on the promises of God's holy word. And the very last verse, verse 13, is a great resolution that through God we will, we will do valiantly. Now, one final matter before we move into that division. You must see this psalm as Christ speaking. That becomes very clear from verses 8 through 9. Christ is asserting his ownership over the church in verse 8, and he is asserting his uh, ownership of the nations and conquests of the nations as his washpot in verse 9. We don't sing that I will be the one, right, to own Gilead and Manasseh and Ephraim and Judah. I don't sing that I am the one who has Moab and the nations as my washpot. It is Christ who is asserting all of this ownership uh, over both the church and the nations. And when we sing it, we sing it united to Jesus as we are his body, which is exactly how Paul in Romans 16.20 says that we will have uh, Satan will be crushed under our feet. It's because we are united to Christ and Christ accomplishes his work through us. And we sing this psalm united to Jesus Christ as his body. And so with that then, to set the psalm's purpose, let's consider its first portion, which is praise. Well, the praises of the psalm are in verses 1 through 5, and they are sourced from Psalm 57. And the psalm starts with praise instead of prayer for this reason. Victory is assured. Victory is assured, so we praise God now. You can praise the Lord, friends, for his victory even before you begin your day. Even if there are setbacks in both your life or in the church for a day or even years or decades or maybe centuries, ultimately, Jesus is victorious. And our prayers, when they come after praises, our prayers are often heightened and set us in the right frame of mind when we use God's praises first. In difficulty, believer, learn from David. Praise the Lord for what? The joy that is set before you. Is there not joy set before every believer? Every believer has unspeakable joy, joy inexpressible that is set before them. Rejoice, For the work of the Lord, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14 Rejoice that one day you will see your beloved Jesus face to face in glory and you will ever live in his presence in a place of no tears. Jesus went to the cross. Why? Suffering it. Why? For the joy that was set before him. Didn't he? This is what you might call anticipatory joy. (coughs) and to praise the Lord well, especially perhaps in a time of sackcloth and ashes, grow in this anticipatory joy, friends. It's for that reason, right, that after seeing at the very end of the book, 
After seeing the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, where righteousness dwells, where the church comes down as a bride uh, prepared for her husband, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Bible then ends with a prayer, even so, come Lord Jesus. This kind of anticipatory joy. You need to anticipate that whatever ails you, or ails the church, or ails the nation, all will be resolved, and all will be dealt with. You can praise God in the midst of your trials as Jesus did with the anticipatory joy that comes from the sure promises of this book. Just as sure, friends, as David was going to be anointed king over a united kingdom of Israel while he was on the run from Saul fearing for his life. Just as sure as that, all these things that the book promises will come to pass. And that's not wishful thinking. That is sure thinking. And so, the first verse begins by saying, Oh God, my heart is fixed, that is, steadfast. This is a quality of the believer. They are fixed. They are steadfast. Why? Because their hope is set in something fixed and unmovable and unshakable. Jesus Christ our Lord. Why is it that any believer can, cannot be wavering, cannot be full of anxiety? It is because their hope is set in one place, Christ. And if your hope is truly set in Christ, it, 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 come what may, right? Come what may, as Job would say, right? My hope is fixed in Christ. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Right? If your hope is in Christ, you can be fixed, unmovable. Your heart can be steadfast. But if your hope is in yourself, is your, if your hope is in men, if your hope is in princes, even the best of men are going to let you down. I was very glad for one of my pastors who said, up front, in essentially a new member's class, I will let you down someday. Because he is just a man. If our hope is in pastors, if our hope is in princes, if our hope is in our family even, then of course our heart could never be fixed. If our hope is in our military, if our hope is in our job, if our hope is in the economy, our hope could never be fixed. Our heart could never be fixed. Our heart could never be steadfast. But when your hope is set in Jesus Christ above, your heart can be fixed no matter what. Think on David. He was unflinching whenever his hope was set in Jehovah. But when his sin drew his heart away from the Lord, that is when his troubles began. Think on Paul in the prison cell, 2 Timothy 4. His heart was fixed on the appearing of Christ. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. Their heart was fixed on the Son of God who stood with them. Think on Stephen when he faced martyrdom. His heart was fixed at the man at God's right hand. He was not terrified of his skull being crushed because his heart was affixed to Jesus. So it must be for you and me, friend. That come what may, our heart is fixed upon Jesus. Is Jesus not worthy of having our heart fixed upon him? Is the Lamb not worthy of your heart? Does the Lamb not reign in the midst of the throne? 
Has he not said, nothing can separate you from the love of God which is centered where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Your heart ought to be fixed and steadfast believer. For it is affixed by the power of the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ. And so what this means is, in the midst of every trial and difficulty, you are still called to praise the Lord. Because your heart is not affixed to your day-by-day circumstances. Because if it is, you will never be fixed. You'd be the most pathetic people in the world if your heart was affixed to the circumstances you find yourself in. But they are affixed to Jesus Christ, the rock unshakable and immovable. And so David says, I will sing and give praise even with my glory. This is, again, a neglected matter, friends. He speaks to his soul with resolve, doesn't he? It's almost as if he's speaking aloud to himself. I will sing praise and uh, sing and give praise. Sometimes, beloved, we have to purpose ourselves to sing and give praise to God. There are some mornings where I am like many of you. Undoubtedly, I do not feel, I do not feel like I can praise God. The last place I want to go is my psalm book and open up the praises of God. And I have to commandeer my soul's affections and say, I will sing and give praise. If your heart is affixed and steadfast in Christ, who is the object of praise, you will see the Lamb of God as worthy. And you will praise Him. Why could Paul and Silas praise the Lord in a prison cell? Because they know, knew, they know, as you ought to know, that no circumstance negates the worthiness of Christ to be praised. Next, the first verse says, we are to praise with our glory. What is our glory? Well, the glory of man is that which distinguishes him from every other creature on the earth. Our glory uh, can be summed up as a whole of every faculty of our soul made in the image of God. So we praise God with every faculty of our soul, our heart, our mind, right, uh, our, 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 our tongue. And it's especially the tongue, the intelligible human tongue that is in view here. Man is made in the image of God and he is given the power to speak. Right? How does, how does our Bible open? It is with the speech of God. Man made in God's image has such a glory, though it is a lesser glory, to be able to speak intelligibly and praise with words. Very helpful to interpret this through the text, through the Bible. Psalm 16.9 says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. But, and you may be familiar with this, when Peter cites Psalm 16.9 in Acts 2.26, the Holy Ghost interprets it. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and here it is, my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Peter says, my tongue instead of my glory, to show us the interpretation that your glory is your tongue. Boys and girls, you might remember that James was very concerned, wasn't he, about your tongue. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude or likeness of God. 
Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. James 3, 8 through 10. And Jesus said, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Boys and girls, your tongue is a barometer of your heart. It is your glory or it is your shame. Use your tongue for the praises of God and to edify others. Next, in verse 2, David says, Awake, psaltery and harp. I myself will awake early. How do you awake psaltery and harp, these stringed instruments? You know, if the Lord wanted us to play the harp, you and I would have to learn how to do it, right? So be very glad that in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.19 says, Make melody in your heart to the Lord. The Greek literally means, and many of you know this, pluck the strings of your heart to the Lord. Pluck your heart strings. This is what the Lord has always wanted, friends. If there is a harp that he wants awoken by you, it is your heart. The harp of your heart. That the strings of your heart would vibrate with the melody of his praise. This is what he's after. That would cause then your heart, would then cause your glory, your tongue, your mouth, to shout the praises of God. And so he says, awaken your heart, believer. Arouse your heart to the praises of God, for he is worthy. In other words, don't come to the praises of God just singing bare words or, or saying, what a beautiful tune. God's not interested in any of that. God wants your heart to vibrate with praises that are heartfelt by the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants. And the link to your heart is heightened by the psalm's wordplay on the awakening of instruments. And if we had more time, this is a beautiful bit of wordplay here. He says first, uh, awake, psaltery, and harp. Then he says, I myself will awake early. Showing what is really in view here, which is not the instrument. I myself will awake early. Your heart is to be roused up to praise God early in the day. First thing. You know this is a general principle of the word of God. The Lord is to have the first and best portion of everything. The first and best portion of everything. And that does not just mean finances, though that is usually where people go with that. That also includes your time. That includes your time. He gets the first day of the week today. He gets the first part of the day as well, every day. It's a strange thing, beloved, if you think on it this way, if you think of the psalm of victory. We want success. We want success in our day, but we are slow to praise the sovereign God who alone can give it. This is how perverse we are. He might ask you now, why do you always want me to bless you and yet you will not bless me. And in the difficulties we face in the evil day we live in, we are called to praise the Lord all the more. You remember Ephesians 5 tells us this, to redeem the time for the days are evil, right? What comes straight after that? Be filled with the Spirit, praising with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There is a way to redeem the time, beloved, and part of that is to praise the Lord. And yet we often spend our time wasting it away while God is not praised in our life. What an evil that is. 
But when the Lord revives His church, God's people, you would probably hear it neighborhood by neighborhood, praising God first thing in the morning. And that is what ought to be in our own homes, beloved. Verse 3 declares, not just in the home, he says, David says, I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people, and I will sing praises unto thee among the nations. David's praise was not confined to the tabernacle, it was not confined to the home, and it was not confined to the secret place. He praised in the midst of Jehovah's enemies, among the nations. When the Bible speaks of nations, it means nations that don't know him, typically. He was going to praise God among nations that were full of idolaters. In spiritual warfare, you're to praise the Lord in the midst of the battle. Uh, Not too long ago, we considered... Actually, it probably was a bit a while ago, but we considered as a congregation Second Chronicles 20.21 when King Jehoshaphat went into battle against Ammon and Moab and we read, and when he had consulted with the people, speaking Jehoshaphat, he appointed singers unto the Lord that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. In a day of spiritual battle, You need to go with the song of praise on your lips, beloved. You remember when we considered that text, how overwhelmed, right? How overwhelmed Jehoshaphat was. What was his immortal prayer? We have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do. Here's a man who doesn't know what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. He went before the Lord by way of prayer and praise, and the Lord delivered Judah. This is one reason if you've come with us to our public evangelism, we praise the Lord as we also pray, uh, preach the word, we pray, and we, uh, we witness to others. We sing the praises of the Lord in the midst of the nations. In your own personal conflicts with sin, bring the praises of the Lord into the battle. It's been a really difficult thing, but I... I see that so often, right, maybe in family worship, we will sing the praises of God, but there's a hesitancy and a reticence, and I'm not sure where it comes from, for our own private devotional time. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you are singing praises to God? And I don't know where that reticence comes from. We have to put it away. Are you singing praises to God? Every day is war. Every day you are called to praise the Lord. Bring the praises of the Lord into battle. Then in verse 4, For thy mercy is great above the heavens, and thy truth reacheth unto the clouds. We praise God that the truth of his mercy is great above the heavens, and it pours upon us as the rains come down from the earth from the, uh, from the clouds. And you cannot help but think about the mercy of God above the heavens uh, without thinking of the Son of God coming down from the heavens to show us mercy for our sins, to take them away from us by his blood as he sprinkles his blood on us, applied by the Holy Spirit. And the thing for us to consider is this. If the Lord in his mercy gave us Christ, how could we doubt that he would not be merciful to us in all of our difficulties? A key thought, when spiritual battles rages, that God's mercy is great and above the heavens. Before the battle, Jehoshaphat singers praise God. Remember the words, praise the Lord for what? His mercy endureth forever. Forever. 
unchanging to his people. His mercy then, like, for instance, let's consider evangelism. His mercy is not just held forth, right? When we proclaim Christ crucified and we hold forth the mercy of God centered in Christ Jesus. Yes, his mercy is on display. But as we do that, his mercy is shown to us as we do his work. And his mercy is upon us. And we have great hope and confidence as we labor for the Lord. That thought ought to capture our hearts. It ought to move us to be abounding in the labors of the Lord. The same thing goes whenever we contend in our own lives for Christ, whether in our personal lives, our workplace, wherever in our nation, our families. Difficulties. We all say, and all must say, His mercy endureth forever. It's higher than the heavens. His mercy is upon them that love Him. Verse 5, Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, and thy glory above all the earth. The glory of God. Here it is. The exaltation of the Lord is the aim of the gospel in our labors. When we labor for anything, we labor for the exaltation of the Lord in it. It doesn't matter what we labor for, but especially in the Great Commission, right? The glory of the Lord, that it would be seen above all the earth. You think about how quaint this is to religious scholars. Here's David of this little kingdom, right, in the ancient Near East. And uh, the strange verse that comes out here then, if they think of it as a secular person does. But here David sees that the glory of the Lord will be above all the earth, not just a small patch of land in the Middle East, that there will not be a place on the earth where Jehovah is not exalted. And when a, per, uh, a people are converted to Jesus, their heart is set upon the glory of God. And this ought to be the aim, and I've I've spoken of this before, this ought to be the aim of the evangelistic endeavor. And if it is, the Lord will bless it. And if you are converted here today, you are converted, why? For the glory and exaltation of God. There is a, a kind of thinking that goes like this, that evangelism is about saving a person from hell, and and that is, of course, true in a sense, but in a secondary way. Your conversion was for the glory of God. Your conversion was that you would praise the Lord eternally, that you would exalt and glorify God forever. That is why you are converted, and that is the purpose of salvation. And as we consider this last, this heading and we come to its close, you have to also remember Christ in this too. Who is it that leads us in this glorious praise? It is Jesus himself. Hebrews 2.12, citing Psalm 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. This is Jesus singing the praises of God. Well, the psalm opens with praise, but it concludes with prayer. And that'll be our last heading. Now, as we consider this last portion, which starts in verse 6 to the end, to verse 13... What you should take note of, because we don't have time to be exhaustive here, are the many arguments being made by David in this prayer portion. And what you can learn from the Psalms is how to argue with God as to why your prayer ought to be answered. Our Lord, even himself, in the Lord's Prayer, taught us to pray via an argument. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You say to God in faith, you alone, O God, have the power to fulfill these things. Yours is the kingdom and the glory in having these answered will go to you because only you can do these things. To use argumentation in prayer is not contention, but it is taking arguments that are found in the very word of God and showing your faith in them, showing your faith in God and your faith even in the relationship established between you and the Almighty through Jesus Christ and by the words inspired by the Holy Ghost. And so with that in view, verse 6, here, look at this wonderful argument that thy beloved may be delivered. Save with thy right hand and answer me. You know, he could have just said, right? Lord, will you give victory over the nations? But what does he couch it in? What is the argument? What is the plea that thy beloved may be delivered? Do you understand that this is the relationship between Christ and his church? Do you understand that this is the relationship between Christ and believers? Do you express this relationship in your petitions to the Lord, in your prayers? What does the Bible say? My beloved is mine and I am his. Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, Hosea, Ephesians, the Revelation, and so much more scripture teaches that. You are the beloved of the Lord, church. He predestinated you in love. He suffered for you in love. He will marry you forever in love. He will dwell with you in an eternity of love. And you need to bring that to the forefront of your prayers, especially when you seek to be delivered. What is the argument? How will you not deliver, O God, the one that you say you love? Men, how? Husbands, how would you respond if your bride cried out in distress, Save me. Save me. Deliver me. If you had the power If you're a godly man, you would move heaven and earth to do it. But Jesus Christ has the power to do it, and he will do it. Bring your relationship to the Lord in your prayers. Fittingly, David prayed then, after that, save with thy right hand, meaning send forth thy power, Lord, thy almighty power. Jesus is seated at God's right hand as the power of God. All power entrusted to him. Christ, the mediator king over all things. For who? For whom? Ephesians 1.22, do you know it? For the sake of his church. For the sake of his beloved. For his sake of his bride. And David pleads as the beloved of the Lord, and answer me. How different that is from rote prayers. Isn't it? Rote prayers where you say, And of course, the Bible says don't do these kinds of things, but you see that with many religious people. I'm going to say 10 so-and-so prayers, right, one after the other. He pleads, answer me. This is a real prayer. It is not a rote prayer. And it shows his dependence on the Lord. He knows who he is speaking to. He knows that he has an audience with the Almighty. Prayer is an intimate time. And he says, and he admits his dependence, if you don't answer me, O God, there is no help and there is no hope. This shows a great trust in the Lord. And to pray, answer me, shows the boldness you have to come to the throne of grace in Christ, as Hebrews teaches, to obtain mercy and grace higher than the heavens. 
And if you pray for things that are agreeable to the will of the Lord, you can say that. Answer me. 1 John 5.14 teaches us to pray things agreeable to his will, agreeable to the word of God. Think about it. If you pray for the success of the Great Commission, you can pray, answer me. If you pray, help me, Lord, mortify my sin, you can pray, answer me. If you pray for strength to be reconciled to your brother or sister, you can pray, answer me. Answer me, O Lord. Answer my righteous and just petitions. You can have boldness before God through the blood of Jesus. The Bible even says what? That the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Go, pray for the will of the Lord and say, answer me. And in keeping with this, (coughs) in verses 7 through 9, he prays God's promises. God hath spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the strength of mine head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom will I cast up my shoe. Over Philistia will I triumph. The key words here are God hath spoken in his holiness. Every word in the Bible is a holy word. And we praise the Lord for that. Every promise of victory over the nations or victory over sin is a word spoken in holiness. Will you think on it that way, beloved? It's a holy word, a true word, a word that will never put us to shame, believer, a word that God on his own honor will maintain. Otherwise, it would be to violate the very holiness of God if this word is broken. But Jesus says that the scriptures cannot be broken, for they are a holy word. And so David says God gave him possession of the territory and tribes of Israel. Mine, Gilead, Manasseh, Ephraim, Judah, the people of God are mine. And you know, might remember that sad and sorry split between northern and southern kingdom. But David says, mine, because God has promised I will be king over all the twelve tribes. They're all mine. But truly, as I have said before, and you know, you think about that, how long it was between, I don't remember it off the top of my head right now, how many years passed? Uh, David was first enthroned king of Judah, and then the rest of Israel later. But he says, mine, because God has promised that they are mine. And so truly though, as we look beyond David, this is a word concerning Christ. We are all his people, the sheep of his pasture. And he says to you all, not only are you my beloved, you are mine. My peculiar possession. David wrote that Judah is God's lawgiver. Out of Judah, the scepter will not depart. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, came out of that tribe. And he wields the scepter of God and God's power in heaven now. After that, the psalm uh, speaks of Christ's triumph over the nations. Moab is God's washpot. A beautiful expression. He will wash his feet in Moab. Moab is gone today. God surely did this. But the people of God, his beloved, endure today. What a thing it is. You know, while he washes his feet in Moab, what a thing when you think of the suffering servant who washes his people's feet. This is our Jesus with such power and yet such a suffering servant for us. He says over Edom, God will cast his shoe, a sign of disdain and contempt. 
Boys and girls, some of you might be old enough to remember when uh, President George W. Bush went to Baghdad and the reporter threw his shoe at him, right? The president was able to duck. But that was meant to be a grave insult. And that's what Jesus Christ is going to do. He will wash his feet and he will cast his shoe on all the nations that will not submit to him. And I want to warn, this is not about just nations. This is also about you here today. If you're not in Christ, Jesus Christ will tread you underfoot. He will crush you. Yes, today we sing of his mercy towards sinners, but the time to receive mercy ends on the day you die. You need to lay hold of Christ by faith, friend. You need to repent and believe on him. He offers, have you not seen how great his mercy is? He offers to forgive you freely. He says, all of your treason against the God of heaven, all of your evil deeds, whatever they are, can be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. Why must you be crushed underfoot when you can be embraced as the Lord's beloved as so many of us have been? Listen to a word from God spoken in holiness, unbelieving friend. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah 118, read it today. Believe it. It is a word of holiness and seek Jesus for mercy, lest he crush you in the way. Verses 10 through 11. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Wilt not thou, O God, who has cast us off? And wilt not thou, O God, go forth with our hosts? David asked the Lord, who could possibly bring us into such a fortified city as Edom? Edom was powerful and strong. He says, there is only one. You, the Lord of hosts, only Jehovah can do it. That is where the man after God's own heart had his trust. If you are not with us, all is lost. I cannot go into Edom myself. Even though you are chastening us now, will you not go forth with us? You think of it. The the nations seem too strong, friends, for a church that has a mere book and prayers. They are not just mere book and prayers. They are powerful things, as we have heard. But we are often in fear of the unbelieving world out there. And we ought to be if God did not lead us. But if God brings us into the strong city, God will have the victory. And so with contrite and humble hearts, as we think on the state of the church, even our church, let us acknowledge our faults and failings to the God of heaven and pray, wilt not thou, O God, go forth with our hosts? That's an important matter for us. We don't wait We don't put the Great Commission on pause when we sense that the Lord is chastening His church. That would actually be to add to His chastening. Instead, we say, go with us, even though judgment has begun in the house of God. Now, boys and girls, the word hosts here means armies. And who is the army of God this side of heaven? We are. We are. An army led by our ministers and elders, but includes every Christian, all earnestly contending for the faith of the gospel together. But we can only contend for the gospel if the Lord goes with us. And David makes that argument in verses 12 through 13. Give us help from trouble, 
For vain is the help of man. Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. Pause here for a moment, and I know my time is up, but help from trouble. Help from trouble. Do we not need help from trouble? Man seems created for trouble, doesn't he? We need help from trouble. But here's the question. Do you know where help from trouble comes from? Where does that help come from? From God, from the Lord who has made heaven and earth. How much help is the help of man worth, friend? Look at this holy word. What does the Bible say? The help of man is worth nothing. It is vain. It is empty. It is hollow. Will you take that to heart today? If nothing else, will you embrace this one truth? David, at his best, did not rely on men. You saw him, a man consecrated to God at his best. He wouldn't even trust in his own mighty men, most of all. He relied on God always, at his best. The same must be true for us. It is not through ministers that we will do valiantly. It will not be by those men that we fawn over at Christian conferences, the apologists or the preachers, that will lead us to victory. That is vanity, friends. Vain is the help of man. Only by Christ will we do valiantly. It is not through the princes of government and politicians either we will do valiantly. Look at the hopes of men that were dashed in the last election. Vain is the help of man. Christian, should you not of all people intimately know this? Of all people on the earth, the born-again believer is, is the one who has said, there is no hope for me outside of Jesus Christ. You have at one point in your life cast all your hopes on the Lord. When it came to your sin, you said, no man, no angel could help me. Only Jesus Christ, Son of God, could. And when you wrestle with your sin, who alone can give you victory over it? A mere man? No. Only Christ and His Holy Spirit can do it. And you plead, answer me. Do not take the psalm then as merely about the Great Commission. But every place the Lordship of Christ must be asserted. Take it up. Especially for the battle that rages in your own heart. Well, then as we close, if our eyes are set upon Jesus... Will you learn today that you can be fixed and immovable, steadfast? That if you are united to Christ, we will do valiantly. That is a promise, friends. And so you must purpose to do valiantly, to do battle against your sin. The church must purpose to do valiantly uh, against uh, unbelief and to take the great commission to the nations. That is a promise that we will do valiantly. God has spoken in his holiness. Seek the kingdom and let us be bold for Jesus and humbled about ourselves. And Jesus Christ will crush Satan underfoot as promised in Genesis 3.15. And he says he will do it in Romans 16.20 under our feet. What a word that is, isn't it? But another word spoken in holiness. You need to rejoice, beloved, because our husband is the victor and we will do valiantly through him. The gospel will triumph. All the evil that we see around us that grieves us, he will put away. No opposition against him will prevail or his church. Anticipate the truth that is prophesied here in this holy word. And with holy anticipation, praise God. 
as the psalm does, and pray to God that all of it will come to pass, for it surely will, and it will not tarry. Amen. May the Lord bless our meditation. If able, please rise for prayer. Our holy God, our Father in heaven, answer us when we pray, thy kingdom come for the glory of Christ. Give to us all the precious promises of the kingdom's advance, O Lord of heaven. Go with our gospel armies as they preach the word and earnestly contend for the gospel of grace and peace. Through your holy hosts, Father, what a thing it is, the only army that is sent to proclaim peace. Reconcile men and nations to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, through the gospel of peace. Bless thy people here, that they would have such great hope, that in every circumstance they would say, My heart is fixed, O God, I will praise thee. Father, cause us, your church, and every church, the church, Catholic, the church universal, to do valiantly, O Lord of heaven, for the sake of the glory of God. We ask this in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.